0: In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. don't be shy community isn't just about priests hitting on boys it's about aliens raping men come on you can shake it
1: yeah don't breathe don't think just take a drink anything goes in paratopia (laughs) and welcome (sighs)
0: <sighs> Jeff, I'm just not feeling doing a podcast today. Tell you that much.
2: I'm not either. It's a beautiful day. What's the point in being cooped up in that goddamn little tiny room?
0: Well, that's a the thing. They're all beautiful days, and we keep missing.
2: Yeah. Ooh, look at that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> are you are are you looking at thongs again, Jeff?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of girls on the beach today. You
0: do have a wife, <laughs> you know. Even though we're on vacation, just thought I'd remind you. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> mind me.
2: Hi, how you doing? <laughs> shh, 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 be very quiet. I'm not gonna hurt you. You <laughs> me, me big American man. <laughs> <a bad>
1: loser.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, that didn't work.
1: <laughs> gentlemen. Great to see you.
2: No, dude, dude, dude we're, n- we're not doing a podcast today. Absolutely a not. A
1: podcast? Nobody wants you to do a podcast. Of course not. It's been a while, Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney, won't you please? Join me for your refreshing, kool
2: As long as I get one of those little umbrella things, I don't care.
0: Yeah, dude, I'm all in.
1: EASY!
0: Nope. EASY! Ugh. Jeff, I almost swallowed a puckered starfish. Oh. Don't know what that's slang for, apparently, where you're from. Alright. <laughs> right. I that,
2: said, oh. Here's
0: that age difference again. Hey, what is that? You hear that sound?
2: Yeah. You know, I do hear that.
0: That sounds awful familiar. I know he, what that is. Is that really streamer? Yeah,
2: yeah, no, no. No,
0: he's not here, right?
2: No, he left days ago. That's uh that's that's the theme from, from Communion. That's what Jeff, that is.
0: Uh, that's that's Philip Mora. He he actually directed the movie Communion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jeff, he he must be directing uh, Communion, the uh, the, the stage reading that we've been trying to see for like the last 3 months. Cause that yeah, I mean that's Zachariah Sitchin, right, playing Whitley Streber and and Angelia Joyner is uh what, everybody else? I don't even know who she's playing. I think Andrew the Sun, right? That's it's kinda weird casting, but you know, Philippe is kind of an artistic guy, so Yeah. We should just we should go over there and just see what we can hear. Or hear what we can see. You know, however the senses work.
2: Is that someone there? You know, I see you. I don't think I like this. I see... I'm I'm seeing something. I'm seeing something there. I don't... No! Get out!
1: Get away!
3: Uh, God! That was moderately acceptable, Zachariah. Great work. uh, Hearing aid, Zach. Turn on your hearing aid. I said that was great. Uh, I require the PayPal payment. What the hell is PayPal? So, well, whatever it is, I noted. it. Or, no, give me the monies. Right.
0: Jeff, this is awesome. We wish for this. I guess the
2: secret works even when we don't. Philippe, hey!
3: Excuse me, do I know you?
0: Uh, no, but I know... Then it's
3: Mr... Huh? Wait a minute. Make that, Doctor. Wait a minute. Make that Vaughn. I like that. Von Mora. Uh,
2: Doctor Moore, can we get a, a minute of your, your time? It's
3: Von Mora.
0: Jeff, you just said time, and that's important, so stop arguing and listen with your mind. What is time? I mean, we see time linearly, but the peoples of the ancient worlds, well, they saw time cyclically. And My father just knew that when he came home from work my mom better have dinner on the table or, well, there were consequences. And I used to hide in the cabinet underneath the sink. And I'd listen to them argue and I'd cry and I'd muffle my ears with my hands and sweat would drip down from my hair that was way too long for a boy. But, you know, my dad was into the whole hippie thing. My mom thought I looked like a girl. I was conflicted. I took to eating and well, what is time?
3: Wrong chunk of change. Time is money. My money. No, but I want my money. It
1: might not have been a spider. What, what I saw,
3: Angelie, Angelina, whatever your name is, Joyner. I called cut minutes ago, and you have to understand, I am Von Mora, and you will obey my orders. They're all
2: soft and perfect. They kind of like a poem. Oh,
3: God, the bloody hell! Do you know what? Look, fine. Let's talk. So I need to get away from these sodding fools.
0: Cool. We got a private podcast cave right around the corner here. Boy, we sure are getting a lot of mileage out of these footstep sound effects, huh? Where are you going, Whip? Philippe Mora. <laughs> you are the director of one of uh, Jeff and Mai's favorite movie, um, Communion, not just because of the alien theme, but because it is the. Christopher walken Christopher Walken performance I've ever seen. And uh, so thank you for getting that out of him.
3: Well, thank you.
0: And uh, one thing that I was struck by, Jeff and I listened to the commentary track uh, together a couple of weekends ago, and um, we were struck by the fact that you throughout uh, stick to the psychological theme um, of the movie, and in the commentary track, you, you sort of indicate that you you aren't certain that it's much more than Whitley Strieber having a serious bout of writer's block. Um, well, first of all, I mean, is that an accurate description of, of what you think is going on with Whitley Strieber after all these years?
3: Well, kind of, but not really. Um, you know, I knew, I've known Whitley for a long, long time. Uh, I met him in London in 1968 69 at the London Film School and um, the film came about because uh, i lost contact with Whitley for a while. He became quite a famous writer. I'd made some movies, and we reconnected in New York. I think it was 87, and I showed him a film I just made, Death of a Soldier, with James Coburn, and we had lunch. And at the lunch, Whitley said to me, you know, uh, something really strange is happening to me, but you'll laugh at me if I tell you what it is. And I could tell he was totally sincere. I mean, this was not, this was like someone who was, you know, genuinely disturbed about something. And then um, he said, if you promise not to laugh, I will tell you. And I said, I promise not to laugh. And he said, well, I think I've been abducted by little blue aliens. And um, I said, well, look, uh, you know, I think you should get a psychiatrist and get a publisher and um, both of which Whitley did. And so then he was he was writing, he wrote the book, and as the book was being written, he was sending me the galleys. If you read the book carefully, uh, the way you describe what I'm saying in the commentary is not that far from what Whitley originally wrote in the book. He didn't know
1: mm-hmm.
3: what it was himself, because let's face it, it's such an extraordinary experience. The first thing you are going to ask yourself is, am I going crazy or not? Right. so that was an issue and then he went out and underwent all those tests uh, including lighter lie detector tests and, and other psychological tests and everything and um, it turned out that um, according to all the tests uh, he believed that what had occurred to him was a, a reality now of course we'll never know, we don't know I mean and that's why you know I, I took let's just say an agnostic position in the in the movie because I thought it was stronger to be an agnostic than to just go straight out, they're here, people are being abducted, then it w- would have been a conventional, well, you know, in parentheses, conventional uh, sci-fi movie, um, whereas by I was just trying to be logical about this, and so if, it, if you take an agnostic position, you leave open the possibility that this actually did happen, which is what I wanted to get across.
0: Well, yeah, and I and I actually thought it was a stroke of genius on your part to do that, because it it did um, bring to the fore of the movie the mystery of it, as opposed to answers, which is what Strieber's all about, you know, remain open to the questions, um, and gave it sort of a mystical quality. Yeah, look,
3: I think there is a, well, look, the, you know, as you know, you guys study this, and I studied for a bit. I mean, this is a bottomless well of philosophies and questions and science and... Uh, Arthur you know you we, it's it's an incredibly complex and uh, rich subject I mean going back into the history of all this stuff you know it's it's just a just amazing um, I'm still not convinced either way I personally had some experiences I mean when we made um, communion um, I went out to the uh, upstate New York at the cabin where Whitley prior to shooting the film, I went out to the cabin and Whitley invited me out there. And uh, I don't mind telling you, it, it was really spooky. And uh, I think Whitley wrote about this in one of his books, but um, I had a um, experience, uh, and now you've got to bear in mind, here's the, the agnostic talking, I was preparing to shoot a film on being abducted by aliens. Mm-hmm. So I, this was all in my head, but I was fr- uh Went for a walk with Whitley in the in the dark woods, and the very bl- cl- clear skies up there. And then way up, uh, we're looking up in the sky. Way up in the sky, um, there's satellites. You know, what it looked like you could say it was satellites. It was very very high up, but they're moving at fast right angles. I mean, it was odd. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Whitley, you know, creepily said to me, "Oh, look, yeah, this is what happens before they visit." I've seen this before. And I thought, oh, he's just trying to, you know, freak me out. But in any event, it's good good material for the film. And that night, I had this very vivid dream uh, in the... Uh, uh, a very vivid dream where I was, you know, the classic bright lights through the window. Then I... Then a very... Like, I would describe it as the communion face, except extremely old. I mean, I was... This was a old, old face, like, you know, if you can imagine, uh, you know, 120 years old or something, wrinkly face, smiling at me uh, over the bed. And next thing I remember, I was outside in the living room of the cabin, lights coming in through the windows, bright, bright lights coming in through the windows. And there was a little swimming pool outside, and I could see like a light beam either sucking light out of the pool or putting light into the pool. Anyway, I was walking around, and then Anne Whitley, Whitley didn't appear in this at all. Then Anne suddenly appeared, and she was very upset. and She said, "Whatever you do, don't wake Andrew." Uh, Andrew was their kid at the time, little kid, and he was. I could see him asleep in his bedroom. Anyway, that was the. Uh, uh, and then I. Then the. The only other memory of this dream was a strange kind of lab. Uh, this turns into a, kind of a horror movie, but uh, a strange lab, and there were like. Artifacts in what looked like glass vials, like skinned rabbits, that sort of that sort of thing. Anyway, I woke up the next morning. Um, uh, you know, thought, "Oh my god, that was a nightmare." <laughs> and well,
0: did you you didn't you didn't wake up during the nightmare? Did you? No. I mean, normally, a nightmare wakes you up, and you.
3: I did. Sort of. No, I, I just remember those sort of three, four basic incidents, and then I woke up in the morning. And then um, Whitley, me, Anne, and uh, Andrew were having breakfast, and Whitley says, "Well, how was your night?" And I said, "Well, I have to tell you, I had the you know damnedest like a nightmare," and um, and uh, I explained what I just explained to you guys. And Whitley said to Anne, "Anne, did you wake up in the night? Did you see Philippe in the night?" And she said, "Well, I'm not sure, but I did get up." So anyway, here you go, said, <laughs> so, what happened? Oh. Was it a dream? was it? What was it? The explanation for the lights coming through the window could have been the you know Whitley had animal photosensor animal light, uh, light things that, mm-hmm. that would trigger so but what it did do, I must say, I did transfer that experience into the movie because it was absolutely like you know these cliche words I don't know, but unreal, supernatural, awesome, freaky you know it had to, it was it was beyond what a normal nightmare uh, uh was for me so but again i was preparing a film about this exact event and it's easily my imagination could have triggered this
0: mm-hmm. um well is it something that stuck with you through the years in terms of it um yeah well for instance i yeah i have a relative who um you know had a ufo experience once way back when and for the, you know, the next couple of decades cannot stop looking at the sky trying to you know see what she can see. Has it affected you in that way? Are you always looking over your shoulder, or has it affected the way you think about these things uh, over the long term?
3: No, I'm not looking o- looking over my shoulder, but it's I'm certainly very still very vivid. As you can tell by the way I describe it to you, it's still very vivid in my mind. Mm-hmm. And um, I called my wife that morning and told her about the whole thing. Um, but... Uh, in, in a more, you know, down-to-earth, uh, no pun intended, more down-to-earth story, was after the film was made, I was in San Antonio uh, discussing a potential film about Majestic with Whitley. He was, had gone moved to San Antonio. And the film community had just come out. And I was late for the airport in San Antonio. I was running to the airport, and there was a guy running behind me. I checked in. You know, once you check in, certainly in those days, they held the flight for you. So they just said, hurry up, get to, the, get to the plane. They're holding it. So, And the guy right behind me did the same thing, and we were running down the uh, corridor, jumped got into the plane, and there, there were two seats left. These were pre-booked seats, and uh, coincidentally or not coincidentally, the two seats were right together. And this guy plunked down next to me. We took off, and he said, well, that was close, wasn't it? I said, yes. And we, I started talking to a very nice guy, like Robert Redford out of Night of the Condor, typecasting intelligence agent preppy Ralph Lauren type, you know. So and uh, young guy, very pleasant, and he says, "Oh, what were you doing in San Antonio?" And I said, "Oh, I was just speaking to a friend of mine, uh, Whitley Strieber, about where we just made a film called Communion." And he suddenly goes, "Oh, Communion! Yeah, that's the best film ever made about alien abduction." And I thought, oh, that was a strange thing to say. (laughs) I said, oh, thanks very much. And he said, do you know Whitley Striever? And I said, well, yeah, of course I do. I made the film. And he said, oh, do you believe that's all true? And I said, well, I don't know. I wasn't there when it happened to him. I certainly believe he thinks it's true. And then the way he was questioning me, I said, look, if you don't mind me asking, are you a journalist? And he said no. And he opened his jacket, and there was this big badge, National Security Agency which I even knew at the time it was way above all the other agencies at the time and it was a you know brass gold badge eagle and I didn't know what to say so I just you know rather lamely said gee gee I didn't know you guys had badges and, <laughs> and he said oh yeah we have badges and then we had a perfectly pleasant talk all the way to LA and he said he was on his way to San Diego, they'd had computer problems and that he was shutting down computers in various places across California or resetting them or something and he gave me his card and um, that was that and then I, sp- I was a, a bit, you know, I was disturbed by this obviously National Security Agency run after you, you ch- mm-hmm. sit down next to you in the plane. and I spoke to my lawyer, I told him what had happened and he said he'd had some background, his dad had been a in the air force and he knew some and he said that that is he said that's a classic way that uh at that level those agencies they do just bump into you and ask you stuff they don't bring you up and make an appointment on that kind so he you know he had some word for it i've forgotten what it is interface or some technical jargon for so that was fascinating and i i know that uh i mean whitley said that he had been um the Air Force had interviewed him when Communion came out, and uh, you know, we, look, we know the history. This has been a lot of uh, military interest in UFOs um, for a variety of reasons. By the way, as you probably know, there was a you know a whole uh, there was a whole program to uh, not confirm or deny UFO reports uh, in the '60s and uh, and early '70s, I think. Uh, to um, dis- cam- disguise, camouflage the, the existence of stealth bombers and other other aircraft that we were developing. So people would see these stealth bombers, which, by the way, look like... I don't know if you've ever seen a stealth bomber in, in, in real life, but, I mean, they, they look more like Star Wars than Star Wars. I mean, they really are unbelievable. People would see these things, ring up the Air Force... And the Air Force would say no, because it was a secret weapon. And then, of course, that started a whole lot of conspiracy stuff. And, um, and you know, people lost uh, trust in government. Uh, 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 some people lost trust in the government over this stuff because they'd actually seen these things, and they were being told they didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, as I say, this whole subject is incredibly rich, as you guys know. Um that's that's the end of my little speech for the moment.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's amazing.
2: Um, I have a question. Yeah,
0: yeah.
3: Uh, Philippe,
2: when you were making communion, I think one one of the things that Jeremy and I are are seeing about people who experience this kind of phenomena is that there are more than enough odd synchronicities that happen. And I guess the NSA story would definitely be one that was connected with the film but are, was there anything on set that you can think of that kind of was a weird synchronicity or a uh, a weird glitchy thing that would show up here and there and kind of make you look sideways at the whole thing um you know from a standpoint of what you're making the film about
3: well uh that's a good question um there was one guy and not to make not to make light of this but there was one guy who um uh, one crew member who was driving home and then um found himself in the uh in the valley here uh you know 20 miles away and when I say not make light of it he may have had an alcoholic blackout or something we don't know but he had he definitely had a, lost some time there somewhere Um, the experience of shooting it itself was very, as all movies are, was very intense anyway, and it's a blur and rush of events, and it'd be very hard to pin, like there was no traumatic event or anything I could pinpoint. One interesting thing which I think helped regarding Christopher Walken is that he was quite skeptical, and so he was, I mean, he's a brilliant actor, so he brought a lot to it, but, um... He um, and I went to Whitley's then-studio home in uh, in Soho in New York before we started shooting. And uh, Walken and I met with quite a few friends of Whitley, some of whom had been abducted. And that, I kind of recreated that scene in the film where there's that thera- group therapy session. Right. Um, Whitley... Um, uh, Whitley was getting, uh, upset. Oh, I don't blame him. It's, it's, how can you see yourself being portrayed on screen, let alone by Christopher Walken? And, uh, you know, I, and he was getting concerned about Christopher Walken's portrayal of him. And I explained to Whitley, which he, you know, perfectly accepted 100%, and, uh, that you just, you got, well, Christopher Walken's an artist in his own right, and this is not a documentary on, on New Whitley. It, this is a recreation. So you've got to let Christopher Walken, um, do his bit. Otherwise, you know, there's no point in having him. But an interesting thing about that, if I could just talk about making a movie for a second, a very difficult thing is portraying a writer on film because writers don't do anything. They think.
0: Don't I know it.
3: so, (laughs) So writers are not running around firing guns or doing karate. And it just struck me about Christopher Walken that his face is and I, I don't want to sound wax too poetic here, but his face is like an action movie. He's, so, he's there's so much going on in his face. I thought, well, this is the way of doing it. That we don't know what he's thinking, but there's obviously a lot going on. So that was um, that was really helpful for me. Um, the uh, uh, the personal thing that happened while we were making the film was that. Um, this is not cosmically related, but uh, it's related to the making of the film. That uh, Lindsay Kraus was, uh, unbeknownst to us, just about to go through a divorce with uh, David Mamet, her husband, who was on set, off and on, and so, um, and so you know, sadly, they they did divorce. Uh, I say sadly because it was a bit traumatic. In the, while this was going on during the film, but her. It helped the film if I can be very. uh, Sounds like I'm being really cold about this, but I'm not. But it helped the film because the way she portrayed her skepticism of Whitley in the film was she she kept accusing him. She's saying, "You, you, you know, you got a mistress, or what's this all about?" So that gave those scenes a lot of intensity, because of course, uh, if you were having an extramarital affair, uh, and you came home and told you I've, I've been abducted by aliens. Well, you know, that's one scenario. Um, the actual uh, uh, abduction scenes were, uh, and the alien scenes were uh, just kind of disturbing too because, um, you know, you're going into a surrealistic area and because i didn't know exactly what had happened and because whitley didn't know exactly what had happened uh we did experiment a little bit with that and um so that's why some of those scenes do become kind of surreal the scene with the christopher walken seeing himself uh, as a magician doing magic tricks
0: which i think i think that scene uh completely justified the puppetry of the film, because I I remember a lot of people's complaints later, and probably not so much then, but later with the advent of, you know, better uh, CGI and that sort of thing is, oh, well, the aliens look fake. Well, you know, in a way they're supposed to. I mean, you've got scenes of him sitting around where where he's playing with the masks, and you've got that scene where he takes off a piece of it and sees the, you know, the beastly alien underneath. I I,
3: know. Look, thanks for mentioning that, because I don't think I could have been any clearer that these were masks and this was a uh, fantasy. And for some people, obviously, didn't see those scenes because they said, oh, the effects were, they looked like masks. Um, but again, again, this is an interesting thing because Whitley clearly described in the book what I called the the zelta man. He clearly described where he wakes up in bed and this, like, very primitive alka a puppet-like thing, a square body and a funny hat comes racing straight at him through the door.
2: <laughs> there it is. And, there it so,
3: is. you know, I, I, I did so I did exactly that. And then you have people, who, you know, uh, uh, I guess uh, I and they said, oh, it looked like a puppet. Well, yeah, exactly. That's what he described. But that was terrifying to me, actually. I mean, I think that's scarier mm-hmm. uh, because that to me that smacked of more reality in a way than say the monster in alien mm-hmm. because if you're going to have if this if these things if this is really going on it is not going to be a cliche monster experience at all it's going to be a much more uh, mentally warping or surreal um experience and and if i can just say that say this about that, uh, that as well the the when you the dreams at least in my experience when you're dreaming um things are uh often simplified like that people do look like uh ghosts or you know I don't really know where I what I'm trying to say here precisely but I but the dreamlike quality of that Alka-Zelta man uh struck home to me and and it, it, to me it was terrifying
0: well what did you Um, think it was doing in the context of the film? Because he doesn't just run across the bed. They seem to put something in him or take something out of him, right? The uh, the I think,
3: I'm just theorizing here, okay? This is a complete speculation fantasy, if you like. If these aliens are around, and we're calling them aliens, if these non-human entities are around, and they're approaching people, and it's impossible for them to approach people as they are, maybe they're they're not even physical as we know them. Then, yeah, they would be sending in weird-looking robots and puppets and we- weird, strange people to make contact. And I mean, we just sent rover. Uh, we just sent these rovers to Mars. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how puppet-like is that rover running around on Mars? And huh. you know. If you think of us, that analogy, we are the aliens sending the Alka-Zeltsa man to Mars. We've done it. So it's not far-fetched at all to think that uh, we're getting strange things here. Let
2: me tell you how much the Earth's vision differs in my perspective to when I watched that film. I'll tell you what I got out of that guy, which was looking at that, that was the point, I think, when that little box man came dribbling in and he had the... the the spiral on his chest, and then they go into the ship and they're opening him up and they're taking things out. I always thought that that represented more or less Whitley's mind, that that was a, like a metaphoric symbol or a dreamlike symbol for his mind, because not long after you see him being opened up and diddled with, that's when Whitley says, you've broken my mind. Um, Well,
3: I think that's a great interpretation of it. I think that's a great interpretation of it. I mean, that's, you know, uh, when you make these films or when you write these books, and Whitley wrote the book, uh, you know, the unconscious uh, outlines things sometimes very clearly. You don't see it at the start, but that's a very interesting thing. Because Whitley, yeah, Chris Walker says, you've broken my mind. Right. Right. Yeah. Right.
2: I mean, I, and here's, here's the question I got about that, which is a purely selfish one, <laughs> and that is that I own uh, one of the, the green bug heads from the bus scene uh, right. that, mm-hmm. that you guys used, which I got from uh, Forrest Ackerman. Right, great. Uh, mm-hmm. And I actually have the, uh, now, and I believe it, it might be the the alien face from the very last scene. Uh, and maybe you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. This thing is is a, like a Nerf material um, with a hole in the back, and it looks very much like the face in the final scene where he says, "What do I call a book about you?" Um, yeah, is it hard? Uh, no, it's, it's solid. It's, it's yes, it's solid. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I own both of those. Now Fantastic. the question is, how do I get the box man? <laughs>
3: Uh, I, wish, really uh, I think, we, I think <laughs> the box man i don't know where he is but the, he got uh, trashed <laughs> yeah it's a shame but uh no the box man was great uh, the, funny funnily enough um you know in movies you have product placement and i don't and i i don't think we ever used any but we actually did get product placement from alca wow <laughs> huh.
0: that's wild are you and whitley still friendly
3: yeah we we are I don't see him he's in that San Antonio but we've been out of touch for a while it's been a while since we made the film
0: Because uh, you know I've heard his um on his radio show you know it seems like a lot of times he talks about the movie and he there's something about it he doesn't like but he doesn't really say what it is has he talked to you about that or was it purely the Christopher Walken portrayal
3: I, I look I don't know for sure but I but I believe that's what it was hmm. um and um but, uh, certainly no hard feelings whatsoever. No, absolutely oh, not. That's good. Yeah, no, you know. I think it's always difficult, though. See, the, the, uh, I, I went really, uh, out of my way to respect Whitley's input on the film in every way because it, because he was, I respected the fact that he was saying it was a true story. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't want him to be saying, well, no, that part of it's not true. So, when, he
0: des- when he described the aliens to you, did uh, or, you know, the visitors or whatever word you want to use, um, did did they sound like what you then saw on the cover of Communion, or was was there a difference? It,
3: they're quite different to me, actually, in the sense that what he was describing was not that specific.
1: hmm uh,
3: But then he described it to, to the uh, artist who did that cover.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, and it came out that way, hmm. um, but to me it was always more non-specific.
1: Hmm.
3: I mean, one of the this is where you this is where you merge into you know anthropology, anthropology versus science versus Jungian archetypes, all this stuff, this huge minestrone of of, uh, of things. But um, the little the images that, and because I wanted to remain true to what Whitley had said, because he was saying it was a true story, the and he described those little blue guys to the artist, and they came out like those little, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarf
1: mm-hmm.
3: little blue guys. Uh, to me, that looked, that was just too anthropomorphic. I mean, that was just, um, uh, that just, if that, that's where you get into. That's where I believe if these things, if these non-human entities exist, you know, you know, maybe they did see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and sent in these little robots. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. To me, it was that was very surreal, and I think that audiences, well, audiences weren't used to a movie like Communion anyway because it's open-ended, and I, and uh, it's one of the reasons I made the film independently because I was being pushed by companies who would have made it here, studios, but they wanted a straight horror film. They wanted me to say, yes, you know, these aliens exist and they're they're, rape, they're abducting people and raping them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to make that movie because that's, that was not the story to me and that wasn't what was intellectually interesting about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think the film caused, you know, and caused a bit of confusion in some people's minds. That's fine with me.
0: And then on the, uh, the DVD commentary track, you do that with Bill Burns. How did Burns get involved in this?
3: After I made the film, I read The Day After Roswell, mm-hmm. Bill's book, and I was absolutely fascinated, and I still am. And so I called Bill, and, I, and we immediately became good friends. And, uh, and sti- we still may make, uh, speaking of future projects, we still may together make some uh, movie incarnation of that book, hmm. um, which is a fantastic story, um, and then we just became friends. And then uh, when the DVD, when I was asked to a DVD commentary, I, frankly, I'd be, I was becoming a bit bored with all these directors pontificating by themselves on their movies. So I thought, why not get some other person here so I can have a discussion? And, and Bill knows a lot about it, so I, it was. It, it just made it easier for me, and I thought I thought it was quite interesting.
0: Any uh, chance of uh, you and Streiber having a discussion on the next edition?
3: Good idea, good idea. Well, I'll certainly suggest it to it.
2: Well, here's uh, here's another selfish question, uh, or maybe not. People probably are interested in this. Hmm. Um, I think going along with the film being some of the most, and Jeremy and I both like totally agree on this. Like some of the most hauntingly gorgeous and ultimately terrifying stuff ever put on film uh, from Communion. You've got uh, Eric Clapton doing the soundtrack, which is probably, for my money, like some of the best guitar work he's ever done. Um, So how did he get involved in that? Because I I was really surprised when that movie came out and he had done the soundtrack. I was like, wow, this is fantastic. Um, How did he come about for that?
3: Well, Eric is a very old friend of mine going back to the 1968 in london where we were roommates in uh in a building called the pheasantry a great place in london in the you know the the so-called swigging 60s and eric was doing cream and i was i was making what were then called underground movies but i was a painter i was earning a living as a painter an artist and um when eric uh we just stayed in touch. All this, and you know, Eric was a movie buff. Eric gave me the money to make my first film, um, a musical, which I've got to put out on DVD someday when I prepare to face the music. Called Trouble in Monopolis. and uh, so you know, he's just a great old mate. And I just thought when we made the film that it'd be really interesting to get his take. I didn't even know whether he'd be interested in this. This is pretty far away from the work he's doing. You know, the subject matter of this. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, we, we all know, you know, his great work. Um, but he really enjoyed the film, and uh, he said, "Look, I'm not very, I don't, not really experienced at doing film scores or anything. But I, you know, if I, could, if I'll, I'll look at the film and I'll just play some themes that come into my head." I said, "Fantastic to do exactly that." Mm-hmm. And when I heard it, I was absolutely startled because it's not what you'd expect at all. It's very I'd like, almost want to say spiritual, soulful, mm-hmm. dreamlike. Um, so he kind of got inside the subject a bit, I think.
0: And when you would uh, go to cocktail parties and, and the, the such after this came out, was the conversation mostly, oh, do you believe this crap? Or was it mostly, uh, I've got a secret to tell you. This is happening to me too. Don't tell anybody. <laughs>
3: yeah. Um, it was both. It was both. I mean, I got inundated by people who um, uh, said they'd been abducted by aliens. Some were obviously disturbed, and um, and they hadn't happened. But but in my opinion, but uh, but others that were were very credible, and uh, I can tell the story. I went to Washington. There was a UFO conference. Actually, it wasn't a UFO conference. It was an abductee conference in Washington. In the um, maybe 89, 90 big conference I think there were like 2,000 people there and this guy came up to me and he said you know what you're a fraud and Whitley Streep is a fraud I've seen the film It's you're just charlatans you shouldn't be perpetrating this on the American people and the people of the world and I said well wait a minute you don't know me you don't know Whitley who, who told you this is a fraud and he said well the aliens told me
0: <laughs> can't argue with that <laughs>
3: yeah no, couldn't do that. So, look, whatever variation you can imagine, uh, we got every kind of criticism. And, and, uh, but the film's grown in reputation, and I think it is because it's grown in reputation, I think, because it is ambiguous about it. And it was treating people, it was treating this as a serious subject, which I don't think had been done before. Well, 2001 had done it, but not as a true story
0: well I' I'm, I imagine it's going to be difficult remaining agnostic and being Whitley's friend because it's not like this just sort of happened this one time I mean he's gone on to make all kinds of claims throughout his life about his life um, and so I guess if you believe he believes it do you see anything in psychology that parallels this I mean how can he remain I'm assuming if he's a friend with you friends with you you think he's sane so I mean uh, how do you cope with that? and and still be able to remain agnostic about this? I'll I'll tell you
3: after my next meeting with Whitley. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm not, you know, I I just don't know. I mean, it was, Whitley started out being much more agnostic himself, as you probably know. If you read the history, if you read the books, it's a development, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But the original book, Communion, quite clearly is a book questioning, not asserting.
0: Right. What do you make of what he's done with it since, you know, with the website and, and all of that?
3: Look, I haven't followed it tremendously. Uh, I mean, I'm looking for, I know he's, I haven't read The Greys, but I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, it sounds like a, a novelization of communion.
0: Um, it's, no, not really. Not really. Oh, good. It, it, it's far more, it's far more, and you know what it really looks like to me is uh, that he wrote uh, an action screenplay. And decided to disguise it as a book because <laughs> it really right. reads like, oh, a, fair a, enough. Yeah. like a Michael Bay. Yeah, yeah. No,
3: I, well, I look forward to reading it. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm um, very interested in um, the the other areas that are the, that are related to this now, like remote viewing and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how much you know about that. You probably know a lot, but uh, yeah. that's kind of interesting because it's the the military and the CIA were definitely involved. In uh, remote viewing programs, mm-hmm. which are, you know, well, you know, you know about it. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, well, so does this mean that you're going to make? Uh, so you're sticking with these topics then? You're 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 tried and true to this. Well, no, <laughs> you no, see I'm yourself faci- that way or not? Uh,
3: look, well, look, I'm fascinated with these with uh, with all that all this kind of fringe areas of human knowledge, and you know, mm-hmm. who wouldn't be?
0: What do you uh, make of you know? I'm thinking back to this NSA guy coming to you on a plane and and saying, "Yep, that's that's the most realistic portrayal of abductions ever." I mean, do you think that that whole, you think that's a lie? Do you think he was in his head joking? I mean, what do you make of a, a government agent coming to you at all about this?
3: My, I think he was. Th- th- I think he was trying to find out whether I and Whitley were hoaxes. Huh. That's the impression I got. That he was trying to find out whether. It was a hoax or not? I mean, remember at the time the book was like number one New York Times bestseller,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, the book hit a nerve. I'm not sure which nerve it hit, but it certainly hit one. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you know, there's been a lot since then.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and do we get to um, do we get to make fun of you about the meat sculpture? Does yeah, that come be
3: now? Be my <laughs> be my guest. Actually, the <laughs> the uh, uh, I I was uh, I got. Is, we were talking about the 60s and i got disillusioned with the commerciality of the art world at the time so i thought i'd and i was quite successful as an artist i was doing illustrations for the beatles in fact the book the beatles illustrated lyrics has a lot of my paintings in it and i was started drifting into film and um i thought as a dada artwork i would make a sculpture out of a piece of out of pieces of meat the idea being that you that you couldn't sell it because it would decay, <laughs> and so uh, I did that. And uh, actually, Eric, Cla- I just had a retrospective in London, and Eric Clapton opened the show in October, opened the exhibition. But there's a funny thing about the meat sculpture. Speaking, not speaking of aliens, the uh, gallery in London, it was in Covent Garden, directly opposite Princess Margaret. Uh, went to her. Went to a restaurant there every Tuesday and she complained about the odour emanating from the art gallery after two weeks and Scotland Yard arrived I was at the gallery and they saw this life-size rotting meat in a glass box and they said to the art dealer look there's been a royal complaint sir what is this? and the art dealer said well it's a work of art and they police officer said we don't care what it is sir it's a health hazard and you must get it out of the gallery <laughs> so then it get, just got a little bit better so the, gal- the god bless him ziggy Krauss, this art dealer he took the meat sculpture home and put it in his back garden oh, and oh, my god. Um, <laughs> the neighbors who didn't like him for some reason the neighbors thought he'd murdered his wife they called <laughs> Scotland Yard again, <laughs> and the homicide squad showed up, and oh. they said, um, guns drawn. And then they saw that it was a meat scotch, and they said, Mr. Krause, this time, please, really get rid of this thing.
0: <laughs> See, now that's art. That's
3: that art. Hard. That was my, that's my, and now, the, of course, the funny thing is, now, you know, there are these artists who are, you know, Damien Hurst is selling, um, Sharks and formaldehydes for four million pounds and things. I mean, it's unbelievable, really.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine, Rosebud who um, You know, used to hang with uh, Andy Warhol and Ginsburg and that whole crowd. And, um, you know, I asked her, I said, you know, it it must be odd to you now because we, we both live in New York. And, you know, back then it was, I mean, there was not only a scene, I mean, everything, the way she describes it, everything just sounded alive, you know, even the pavement of New York sounded alive with this artistic uh, community. And, and um, you know, what is it like now, seeing that it's all sort of gentrified and gapified, if you will? Um, and she said, uh, <laughs> she said, of the art world now, she said, if you notice, um, if you look at any art magazine, it's always, first of all, the artist is always sort of slim and sexy and they're always in the foreground, and in the background, very tiny is their artwork. And that, she said that's the biggest difference between now and
3: then. No, I, I agree. I mean, there was cert- definitely an energy... You know, I think these things come in, in cycles, and um, we've definitely been going through a bad cultural cycle <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But I think that creative energy will come back. And mm-hmm. and the art world definitely has gone celebrity-oriented, and, and the prices are absurd. Um... And, you know, you could, the, uh, the shark in formaldehyde costs more than a Van Gogh. I mean, the whole thing has gone mad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's idiocracy. Yeah. Yes,
3: it is. But, uh,
0: so what are you working on now? What's, what projects do you have on your plate?
3: Um, I'm working on a re- uh, remote viewing movie. Oh, you um, are. Oh, good. Uh, called, uh, we're developing it now. I'm going to shoot it later in the year. It's called Un-American Activities. Hmm. And, Is it based
0: uh, on any particular books or just all of them? No,
3: it's an original screenplay. Hmm. Um, I'm working on um, a uh, graphic adaptation of various declassified files that I've been studying over the last couple of years. I was, I was working as a, a part-time... Uh, well, I've always been writing, but I, the Sydney Morning Herald... Um, in Australia I was publishing some of my articles and um, I started finding these amazing FBI and CIA files on various subjects by the way including Marilyn Monroe and stealth, you name it, they've, there's a file on it but all this stuff is available now because of the Freedom of Information Act so I'm doing a graphic adaptation based on the most interesting files on a variety of subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Planning a film on the life of Salvador Dali, mm. a surrealist close to my heart. And um, I've just finished a docu- uh, mockumentary. I've just finished a mockumentary on uh, the obscure but fascinating subject of Gertrude Stein, the um, American writer who lived in Paris and discovered Picasso. So aside from that I'm also is, I'm also where Kate. does the mocking come in? Um the the marking comes in that um we reveal that she did not die in nineteen forty seven. Okay. And she lived on to change world events, including oh. a deep association with Richard Nixon. <laughs>
0: oh. I'll be looking forward to all of those. <laughs>
3: okay. So so it's busy here. Mm-hmm. And uh I just came back from China. I was in China in uh, October and Tibet. And um I filmed there. I actually filmed some of the Gertrude Stein movies uh, scenes in Tibet. So that's fascinating. And speaking of uh aliens, uh the the yeti is a fantastic subject which I'm working on. Mm. The the yeti of the Himalayas and Tibet. And um
0: have uh, you I assume you you've been speaking to people up there about that? In, I, I was, yeah, so do they th- see it as a see we've been talking about uh, you know Bigfoot, and I'll, I guess I'll just throw all of those in together. you know are these uh, creatures that you can find in the forest or is there some mystical quality you know there's UFO lore associated with them as well. Did you find that people out there just thought that they were a creature in the forest, or did they attribute magical properties to it?
3: Uh, look, there's variations on that. Uh, I spoke to some monks in a 500-year-old monastery, um, uh, the second largest monastery, Kumbum monastery, near uh, a big city in Tibet called Xining, X-I-N-I-N-G, um, and he just believed it was a real thing. And he said he'd seen uh, Yeti scalps, and um, he didn't call it a skull, but that's what he was describing to me, the head, the hair. Uh, he'd seen those in other monasteries. But you look, uh, Sir so Edmund Hillary, who climbed the top of Everest, uh, uh, if you get into this Yeti subject, he believed the Yeti existed for quite a while, and he, after he got to the top of Everest, he went back into Nepal with a 300-man expedition to try and find the Yeti, because he'd seen footprints and he'd found hairs. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he went back up there and um, didn't find one, but found more footprints, and then he concluded uh, that it was a myth. That that was his conclusion. But for a while there, he really believed in its existence, because they even recently they found footprints at 19,000 feet, and as someone pointed out, that's a long way to go up for a hoax. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, what I don't understand, how, how did he conclude it was a myth if he's seen the footprint in the hair?
3: Um, that that was hopeful. Well, I'm just, that, that's what he said. Now, wh- I mean, whether he believed it was a myth or not, I don't know. But, I mean, he that's what he said.
0: That's like having an alien abduction experience at Strieber's cabin and thinking it was a dream. I mean, kind of silly, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: wait. That's oh wait, in my mouth. <laughs> no, is, no, 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 it's very interesting. The, the, the Hillary Yeti... Um, story is very is a very interesting one It's part of the movie we're making by the way we're getting into that because he shot film as well huh uh, well
0: that's fascinating too
3: um but you know see the the Sasquatch Bigfoot I think it's more likely that a Yeti exists because of the the environment up there I mean the these North America's pretty well developed now I mean the US is anyway I mean I just I I personally think it's unlikely that there'd be um Bigfoot living out there, because you couldn't just have Bigfoot. You'd have to have Bigfoot and his whole family, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's
0: true. Do you, So I get the sense that you're sort of an adventure man. You like you actually like to do all of the travel and the work behind uh, your films. You, is that true? I mean, are, are films sort of a way for you to be able to, to do exploring?
3: Well, look, it's one of the perks of filmmaking, really, is that you do go to these fantastic places. I mean, yes, I, I love doing that. As I say, it's one of the perks of filmmaking. You do get to very unusual places and meet fantastic people, by the way, researching these stories. But, yeah, my interests are... They're wide, honestly, guys. They're very wide. I mean, I'm very interested in history. You know, I made some documentaries early on. Um, Brother Can You Spare a Dime, which was about the the, uh, the Great Depression of the 30s, which was a compilation documentary. And uh, I made... Uh, a movie called Swastika, which was about the rise of Hitler. And that was a fascinating project because uh, I I ended up with Lutz Becker, my researcher, finding Eva Braun's home movies in the Pentagon in 1973. Wow. And that stuff is widely, I mean, it's on History Channel all the time, all that color footage of Hitler and Eva Braun. um, Most of that is what Lutz and I found in 1973.
0: How do you find that?
3: Well, the brief story is I saw, we were making the film in London, and I saw a photo of Eva Braun with a 16mm camera, and I just turned to Lutz and I said, I wonder where the film is in that camera. And it turned out that she was photographed at over Salzburg, Hitler's house. So then it, it, Lutz and I found out pretty quickly it was the U.S. Marine and Signal Corps, which was an intelligence arm um, of the Marine Corps, U.S. Signals and Marine Corps, were the first into Hitler's house. And they basically hoovered it and sent everything back for examination to the Pentagon. And after all, this was the man they just defeated who'd nearly, you know, taken over the world. And they all wanted the psychological profile of him in detail. So and everything was sucked out of over Salzburg, shipped back. Uh, this was April 45. And then... Um, uh, so I, we called the Pentagon. I called the, the Pentagon, and there was a very nice colonel there, there, very uh, cooperative. And he said, um, "Everything captured by the Pentagon is, um, at that time, is indexed under date of capture, not content of capture, because there's so so much was captured. it hasn't even been gone through in detail yet." So he said, "If you, if you can give me some dates, I can get back to you." So then we quickly found out they'd gone in, I don't know, it was a two week period in uh, April and May, going into May 1945. And so we gave him the dates, and I forgot about it. And then he called in London three months later in the editing room. He said, Mr. Moritz, Colonel, I've forgotten his last name, unfortunately. He said, "Uh, Look, I've located eight cans of 16 millimeter color film captured in Eva Braun's bedroom. Is that what you're looking for? No. Hmm. We uh, oh.
0: we well, in in doing your research on uh, on Hitler and the Nazis, uh, you know, the, the, there's all the occult stuff, there's, of course, the extermination of Jews, there's the global domination. Do you have a sense, having looked at, I'm sure, I'm assuming you've looked at all of this stuff, all of these aspects, what their actual motive was? Or can it even be well? No, one I
3: thing? no, I think well. Hitler said what his motive was. I mean, Hitler clearly said that he was a pagan. Uh, he was, he was, he, and he's you know he clearly said all this. Uh, he wanted to destroy Judeo Christianity. He thought the Western civilization had gone seriously south with um, Judeo Christianity, and he wanted to revert to the old uh, old forms of paganism. And uh, actually, uh, you know, Churchill famously held up Mein Kampf in Parliament in 1937, I think, maybe earlier, and said, "Has anyone read this? Because I have, and I'm telling you, the pagans are coming." And I think, you know, that he wanted. To, he I, Hitler believed in all of the mumbo jumbo that he was spouting. He believed in the uh, superiority of the Aryan race. He wanted to subjugate the rest of the world. Uh, he wanted to have a master race and have everyone else as slaves. And by the way, they did it in the Third Reich. I mean, they had slave labor right up until the end. Uh, so it's a really horrifying and terrifying history. Um, and uh, but the simplest exp- the simplest explanation is he was, you know, a pagan and he believed in what they were doing.
0: Hmm. Jeff, do you have anything?
3: Uh,
2: well, one, but it's completely aside from everything that we've been currently talking about, um, and everybody can who's listening can prepare to take a drink. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Philip, how much have you read of any of the work of Terence McKenna,
3: if I, any? Not, I haven't. Just remind me, what's he written?
2: He uh, he wrote a a book called True Hallucinations, and he wrote uh, another book with his brother Dennis, who's been on the show, uh, called Food of the Gods and the Invisible Landscape. And they were uh, essentially uh, two guys who went down with a group of people, kind of a little expedition to the Amazon, and they were looking for uh, not only psilocybin mushroom experimentation, but also ayahuasca. Um experimentation, and uh, the people that they met there had described you know encounters with beings while under the influence of these uh, very powerful tryptamine drugs and here lately, Jeremy and I have had started seeing uh, a lot of correlation between the alien abduction scenario and s- some connective threads with the psychedelic experiences, right? Uh, now, being a guy who hung out with Eric Clapton and Cream <laughs> way back when, uh, I'm curious if you ever had any sort of experience like that 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 you felt might have helped you uh, either consciously or subconsciously with the communion project in how the surrealistic aspects of these things... I I just, I have a very... That's an interesting, a very
3: interesting question, because, uh, you know, either culturally, (laughs) scientifically, or pop culture, it's a very interesting question, because at that time we were, uh, uh, Martin Sharp, the artist, uh, uh, Martin Sharp was an artist living with Eric and myself, too, and Martin did all the cream covers, those... Mm -hmm that fantastic artwork actually he was a leading psychedelic artist and um we were very interested in ufos uh, long before uh um communion i mean it was a in fact there's a terrific english magazine called the flying saucer review i don't know whether you're familiar with it sure uh but we were we religiously read uh flying saucer review as well as playboy by the way and um <laughs> we were involved in a um, what was then called a countercultural magazine called Oz magazine mm-hmm. and um, we uh, martin and i did an all graphic issue of Oz magazine in, i think it was 1970 or something like that it's available on, on ebay i'm sure uh, it's regarded as a bit of a classic but anyway it was it's full of flying saucers and stuff dredging back in my mind specifically as to whether I ever had an experience like that. Uh, uh, That I don't remember, but I just remember uh, long and detailed discussions about flying saucers, aliens, and so on. Now, by the way, 2001, which came out in 1968, had a huge mind-opening effect on this whole subject. Because there had never been a mainstream film, let alone one in 70mm Cinerama, um, dealing in these really esoteric subjects. The end of 2001, which you can probably gather affected how I shot The End of Communion. The end of 2001, it was incredibly abstract. And um, uh, it's amazing that Kubrick was able to get that. I mean, his prestige was huge enough that even then. That he could get a film, a Hollywood movie, released like that with uh, so many unanswered questions at the end, mm. and I, I think it stimulated everyone. That movie, yeah. but it, you know, is it? Look, psychedelics have been around forever. I mean, they're even claiming, you know, there's uh, uh, cannabis resin residue in Shakespeare's pipes. I mean, but it, <laughs> you know, it goes back to, as we know, Mayan culture, the Egyptians. I mean. I, I, there's no question that psychedelics have had a huge effect of, on, on human thought and maybe built into our DNA. Who knows? I mean, uh, the Neanderthals uh, wandering around eating mushrooms survived. You know, here we are. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Well, thank you very much for spending an hour with us yes. and uh, letting us pick your brain and <laughs> I'm like a giddy little kid. I get to ask all my communion questions. Well, subscriber. thank
3: you. No, it's Amazing. been a lot of fun. I can't believe it's now, but... <laughs> You know, these are fascinating subjects, all of them.
0: Is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to cover, or any question that you wanted to be asked that we missed?
3: Not really. I just, I've just enjoyed the conversation. It's got me thinking about all these things all over again. It's, uh, there's so many uh, unanswered questions. By the way, I thought Altered States was a pretty uh, good movie, and underrated.
0: Yeah, that just came up in conversation the other night, and that's one that I hadn't seen, and I got chastised like it was, you know, <laughs> you haven't seen altered states, like you know. I think it was almost kicked off the dinner table. That's so funny. No, that. n-
3: not a bad film. Again, not really understood at the time, but um, very good yeah, film. Yeah,
0: I'll definitely be checking that out. Well, Philippe, thank you very much for uh, for doing this again. Thanks, Chance. Anytime. You. Thank you.
2: Ted Rowe from NarCast. You're listening to Jeff and Jeremy on Paratopia, and I'm not.
1: (laughs) Eerie Radio. The endeavor for esoteric research and investigation into the enigmatic. Eerie Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Eerie Radio from your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.eerieradio.com. Eerie Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh.
0: Philippe Mora, Jeffrey. Philippe Mora, are you, uh, are your nipples hard like a schoolgirl in the way that mine are? (laughs)
2: <laughs> like like little diamonds.
0: That was fun. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. And that cool. actually got that deeper really than I cool. expected, frankly.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, um, and I know that, that, you know, of course, most of the people we've gotten in here have been to talk about these deep subjects and, and not necessarily Eric Clapton and Cream. and. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe we should have.
2: <laughs> that was cool, you know, I mean... Um, and I mean I'll tell you what clearly something happened with him up at the cabin at Whitley's.
1: No. <laughs> it was a dream. I mean
2: come on, you know. Come <laughs> on. Jeez. It was a
0: that's that's a,
2: that's a pretty uh pretty deep and interesting you know experience there. I mean especially the I I, I find the, the old gray or the old alien look kind of puzzling. Mhm. Uh, with that and the fact that it smiled at him that had to have been grisly um but yeah i mean really and a great guy too super nice and uh, and affording to us so um yeah i mean it, it definitely not one of our typical guests but definitely a deep one and a, and and one i think we should get back on to talk about the remote viewing stuff that he's doing and oh yeah and that. i mean that sounds really fascinating
0: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I wish I had something to add about this, but I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> I just had fun, you know? Yeah,
2: well, you know...
0: I mean, it, God, it's, it's so weird to like have these questions about a movie that you've had forever, and then, you know, 10 years later, or whatever it is, 20 years later, just talk to the director, ask him what he meant.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I I thought the, the alka Salter man, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's the Alka-Seltzer, man. Yeah, I never would have gone there. <laughs> the, the, little, the little hurdy-gurdy robot. <laughs> it's the Alka-Seltzer, man. What the hell is that all about? I mean, that's just really, really wild. And quite disappointing, in fact, that I can't own it. <laughs> uh.
0: Well, you can recreate it.
2: I'll make one, yeah. Actually, yeah.
0: the hat of that thing, was it similar? No, I guess it wasn't. Similar to what you experienced when you were nine. When that thing came in, um, and clapped in your
2: face. No, it it was sort of um, yeah. That was a walk lid type looking thing. Yeah. This this uh, the little robot had like more or less what would have been to its caricature, like a little Zoro hat. Uh, which oddly enough has been reported in alien stuff before. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's um, that's kind of always how I interpreted it. it was that that was his that was his mind racing, you know, that sort of. A thing but um, I mean how great is that though they worked of Christopher Walken's like my favorite actor ever and yeah you know I, I'm surprised we didn't get into how we impersonate the show uh, the movie consistently throughout the show you know <laughs> well, that's someone there
0: he's in for a <laughs> big surprise a very big that's
2: surprise a very big surprise. <laughs> yes so um, yeah I mean it was great and 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 clearly the guy is interested in in the esoteric subjects and making movies about them, which is great because that just brings, you know, much like what, what we're trying to do, which is to bring people who wouldn't normally be interested in these subjects into being interested. I think the yeah. fact that he makes movies about these subjects and tries to engage the public at large with them is pretty...
0: And that he keeps it real.
2: And that's a bold thing to try to do, yeah. really. I mean, Screw you, I, studios. I, still...
0: I don't want to make a horror movie. Right. Oh, I mean, I how many
2: people make Communion and make it the, the heady movie that it is that's still, in my opinion, grossly unappreciated? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, I count that as one of the number number one uh, for me uh, in respects to Christopher Walken's uh, performance in that was just... Oh, yeah. To me, it was ridiculously <laughs> quintessential Walken.
0: Well, and you know, part like, of it, is, as he said in the um, you know one of the featurettes are on the commentary track there, or not the commentary track on the you know on the DVD special edition uh, was he directed Walken to um, to play however he actually felt about what he was seeing in the scene. So if he saw a little you know robot guy coming at him uh, and he wanted secretly wanted to laugh at it, but the direction on the script is you know that he's scared. Well, screw that. Laugh, you know, right? And so there's a lot of that in the movie where you, and it adds to the surreal quality of everything. And, Absolutely, and to me, to the, the actually the realistic quality of it, uh, because the, you know it's not like he's laughing at it in the way that an actor breaks character and starts laughing. He's laughing at it like you got to be fucking kidding me, you know? He's mad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I I find it. Um, I, I was, and I was going to say this to him when I was asking about the you know the whole. Aspect of the the DMT experience or the psychedelic experience and and making the movie, it's like you watch this movie and you think, how did the guy who made this not have some sort of really bizarre experience like this? <laughs> you know, there's just I, I don't see how anybody could accuratize it. Um, and that's that's the that's the weird part about it to me is that you look at that film and you think, man, you know, it's so. Uh, I mean, mean, I'm not going to say that visually it's 100% accurate, but the feeling of it is just so dead on to that bizarreness aspect of it that you just, you think, you know, this has got to be more than simple direction here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, great film, great guy, great guest.
0: Great everything.
1: La, 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 la,
2: la, la, la. Yeah. All very happy here today. (laughs) rainy Sunday afternoon.
0: Well, this has been a really uh, eventful uh, 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 seven-minute post-chat discussion that we've had here. Well, how about we... Um, it might be a How record. about, <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> how about we, uh, we look at the message board? Because we never talk about the message board.
0: Alright. Let me put this on pause uh, and we'll do that.
2: Um...
0: So the Jeff... Um, getting back to our conversation with Debbie Jordan, of course, the one question we both missed was, uh, the obvious one. Uh, what were those crop formations that you so accurately drew in the 80s that became a reality in the 90s in the English wheat fields? Um, and she sent them to us. What do you make of them? To me, they look too accurate to be, uh, coincidence, and... So I've either got to rethink these crop circles or uh she had mentioned in an in email to me that that um crop circle researcher Colin Andrews um says that that a lot of people have seen these you know have have done the same thing. Well, I guess it depends on when she showed them to him because perhaps he slipped them to the crop circle makers. I wouldn't put it past anybody. I interestingly enough, uh, and we'll I guess get into this a little bit later but I had dinner with um, some people last night and and Colin Andrews came up um, through uh, one of the people I was talking to there uh, Colin Andrews is a friend of his who he stays away from actually because he says Andrews he really seems to attract you know negative spirits and things like that to him like he really he really revels in all of the occult stuff and uh, has written a book with his wife 2012 for dummies which uh, he thinks is um, just a, tra- a travesty to have written that because well for one he didn't actually speak to any of the Mayans <laughs> so he's just he's just riffing off the work of like Jose Arguez or however his name's pronounced and you know John Major Jenkins and the various authors whose works are how you say questionable um, so to me he doesn't um, you know he'd be interesting I'd like to meet him and I'd, you know maybe have him on the show but he sounds uh, like he could be a questionable character, let's say. so I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past him to uh, to be tricky like that and to take experiencers sketches and give them to crop makers to make. but barring that, assuming that didn't happen and I have no evidence that that did. I'm just throwing that out there as another option. What do you make? Do you, does it look like um, accurate enough to? Have been a prediction of those circles some 10 years earlier?
2: Uh, well, I mean, the big question I got with respect to the, the photographs of the crop circles is are they, you know, have they been okie doed by um, the, the people who are into that sort of thing? Have they been found to have exploded nodules and higher radiation readings and all of that? I mean, I don't know that. Um I mean, I'm looking at the ones that you have posted up on the board here. One being, I mean, let's go with the first one, the pyramid with the sun behind it. Um, you know, I think, I think probably in terms of accuracy, that that's probably one of the more accurate ones that Deb has has sketched on here. Um, but I don't know that that's. I mean, again, I don't know that that's a, 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 a an uncommon looking. Thing. I mean, that's that's the, the, essentially the same thing as on the back of a dollar bill. Um, so it's a it's not an uncommon thematic uh, with that. Um, as far as the one that's connect the dots, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, probably alone from the standpoint that I'd like to throw that into a 3D modeling program and and turn Deborah's drawing and see if we end up with something that looks like. The thing on the right, I, that would be curious to do, and I actually might do that. Um, now, and
0: these can be found at our forum, by the way. We have it right underneath her episode discussion thread. Is the uh, her crop circle thread? So you can go there and look at these for yourself, and then she'll be supplying me with a thread to her own website when she puts them on there because she has other crop circle pictures that she had previously drawn as well.
2: Right, and um, and then we have we have the. Uh, the circles that are kind of put like a, you know, almost like a snake tail, like a rattlesnake tail looking thing. I mean, again, that one I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I mean that could be somewhat interesting if it weren't so incredibly simplistic and um, you know, and, and able to I mean, that, that symbol I mean, how many times has anyone drawn you know, uh, concentric circles that, that are just kind of beside each other and going into it. Now, if it had come up as, like, as Debbie has drawn it here, with the, like, an S, backwards S-type symbol, if that had actually shown up in the field, then I'd say, yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, but it does it's really, have a similar
0: arc to it. it. Has, yeah, it
2: has a similar quality, for sure. And then the last one, which is, I call the Ballantine Beer logo, uh, <laughs> or the, the um, uh, John Bonham symbol, I think, from Led Zeppelin for. um... I mean that again is a is a a symbol that's 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 very old. I can't remember what that's called. The uh, the three concentric circles with the um, or the three circles basically um, kind of touching it, overlapping, being a different color or a symbol unto itself. Um, that's a relatively common symbol. Now again, if it had been in the same configuration, I'd say okay, interesting. Um, but, they, I mean, none of this is meant to detract from what she's doing. And, 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 and uh, Colin Andrews is absolutely right when he talks about that. There was a group, and I think this has actually been on the History Channel or, or one of those uh, you know, documentaries where they had people, uh, you know, in that Avery, Silver Hill area um, over in England, sitting on a, you know, on, a, on a nearby hill with sketchbooks. And basically, they'd all agree on a sketch, and they'd sit around and meditate on that and then not too much too much longer that thing would appear in the field uh, and supposedly from what i remember those were the exploded nodule um, you know higher higher radiation levels uh, you know perfectly swirled alternating swirl patterns going down into the crop circle layer upon layer i mean you know that's that's some pretty weird stuff um, you know what any of that means? Who 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 knows? Um, I kind of always like the open-ended answer that you know we don't know what any of these symbols mean consciously, but maybe subconsciously we know something about what they mean. Um, uh, and much you know, going back all the way to uh, uh, to George Hansen's episode where you know we were talking about you know higher stress levels and 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 change and turmoil will happen, you know, around you know, paranormal events tend to happen around those kinds of situations. And they have absolutely said time after time about the crop circle phenomena that that, that the most intricate and the most uh well in the in the in the, the way of numbers uh of crop formation seem to happen, genuines happen when the world is going through some sort of turmoil or conflict. So um you know, all that's really interesting. I don't. I don't. You know, I'd very much like to do the connect the dot ones that that uh, that Debbie has, and try to build that into some kind of maybe cohesive three D model, and see what that hap- what happens when you actually turn that. Mm-hmm. Of course, that all be re- respectful in, in 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 the sense of you know what's the relative distance of the dots versus the lines. So I guess in a way that'll be interpretative, but I'd like to see what happens with it.
0: Well, the getting back to the triangle one, mm-hmm. it is similar, more similar than I think you're giving it credit for because of the shadow
2: of the shadow.
0: Uh, you know, one side is white, one side is black on hers, and in the other one, it's the mm-hmm. same sort of thing. It's like the sun is shining, and well, when you one draw a pyramid, that's, and, I mean, again, when when I maybe mean, that's not like the dollar bill, really. It's I mean, that's pretty specific.
2: No, I mean, it's specific in the sense that that's how you draw a pyramid. Um, I mean, anything, anybody who goes to draw a three-dimensional object, then especially if it's a if it's a, a pyramid,al it has to be, you know, one side would have to be darker than the other. Um, uh, I, I I mean, I give it credit in the sense that that is, you know, pretty interesting. In the fact, I think what's more interesting to me is that the the sun that Deb drew behind the peak of the of the pyramid really corresponds more to me with being the outer edge of the circle on the crop circle. Um, Seeing the sun inside of that. So if you look at it that way, I think it's far and away the most accurate that she did. Um, uh, I just, I don't think that... um, I don't think that there's anything, really, as far as the shading goes on it. Uh, I mean, if you're going to draw a three-dimensional object, one side, especially when you talk about this view of a pyramid, you know, one side's got to be darker than the other for it to even look remotely 3D. Um, So, I I mean, they're all somewhat impressive in the sense that she drew them so many years beforehand. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And, of course, if any one of them were exactly 100%, then that's the point where I'd say, okay, let's, you know, let's try to verify the dates on these things. Let's try to really you know, make something out of this. But, I mean, yeah, people have drawn them before they've shown up. The question is, is number one, how accurate are they? And number two, are they, um, are they something so highly specific and individualized that is represented on a drawing versus what shows up in a field? You know, you know what I'm saying. I mean, how yeah. accurate is it that it has to be that? Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, as far as these go, they've all got definite similarities to. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: but uh, uh, I'm not saying I'm unimpressed. I am, but it's. Uh, uh, I, I think all of them, save for the connect the dots one, I think all of them use, um, pretty common you know, geometric patterns and known geometric, you know, assemblages of those those type of shapes. So, um, I mean, can you ascribe them to more than doodles? I don't know. Um,
0: I don't doodle those things.
2: Well, I, I mean, I've definitely done the pyramid a few times.
0: I make hand uh, turkeys.
2: Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, that's about as much as I can say about it.
0: All right. Well, let me share with you my odd synchronicity yes. <laughs> into dinner last night, and I didn't even tell you part of this, um, which is, and I don't even know if I should be talking about this really, because I think some of it is sort of, um, you know, under the lid, but, but I'm sure I'll hear about it in some way okay. <laughs> if I'm speaking out of turn. Um, so I guess just take everything I'm about to tell you with a large grain of salt. A few weeks ago, uh, my friend Melissa um, Reed was telling me about some people she'd met um, who are representatives of the Kogi indigenous peoples of Colombia. They live uh, 8,000 feet up in the snowy hills of a mountain there, and they don't let anthropologists in, they don't let anyone in. They let the BBC, uh, a BBC documentary documentary, Crew in in the mid nineties, so there is a documentary about them, but that's it. Um, they're very uh, untrusting of people. Um, to get up there is a bitch because you have to they they make you take off your shoes to walk. So you are walking up the mountain, and it's a snow peak. <laughs> so you are walking barefoot in a snow peak mountain up eight thousand feet, where you can barely breathe. You know, if you are not used to that type of uh, height, um, so. And this is where they live, you know? And essentially, they're in the way of government building projects at this point, from the government point of view. So they're in trouble. You know, their land is in trouble. um, And they consider themselves the heart of the world. They pretty much are a race of meditators. And they claim that they are um, not human quite in the way that we are. Star people, perhaps? Uh, Definitely in contact with beings from other dimensions, deities, and that sort of thing, in that if they go, so goes the world. Now, the, the the a couple of the tribal elders want to come off the mountain and come to the states and speak, and it wasn't real clear to me what their goal was. Was it fundraising to save their lands? Was it to get their message of this type out to the world? What What is it? And it's still not that clear to me, and it's also not that clear to the people representing them because they don't make anything clear. They just sort of say... You'll know when it's time, you know, or just read the signs, that sort of thing. Mm. And they've actually been picking spots. They've actually been saying, look, this is where we need to go. Now, not having ever visited America, uh, that's pretty odd. So they want to come to New York. <laughs> and they, the, you know, the conversation last night was, and, and I guess I've got to have this conversation with Phil and Brogno. Do you know of any ancient sites around here, which I don't, that are... Um, Clean sites you know not 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 the philmbrogno pre celtic you know uh, sort of occult whatever anomalous sites but something else i don 't't I don't really know what exactly it is that they're looking for but but they definitely know that they want to be in this general area and when they figure it out they'll let us know
2: okay.
0: um, so th- you know all of that is interesting to me but well the conversation a couple of weeks ago was when I thought that this was purely about fundraising. Uh, how do we do this? You know, can culture of contact help out in some way? Um, and I had just said, "Hey, why don't we try to get you too?" You know, like Bono's always up for <laughs> uh helping the people, right? right? Uh, and of course, you know, she sort of patted me on the head and said, "That's good, Jer. Now let's be realistic." And I'm <laughs> like, "But wait a minute, you're a little Miss Energy, Energy, Energy. Let's uh, let's all just uh, you know, utilize the secret and think on it, and then it'll come to you." Why can't we do this? And patted me on the head. No, yeah, that's nice, Jer. Great. So, uh, Friday night, I go to see my sister's uh, staged reading of a play, um, and one of the leads in it, um, I go out to dinner with him afterwards, and she's very nice, and her boyfriend is with her, and he's also very nice, and I get to chatting him up, and it turns out that he is the producer of Spider-Man the Musical. Ugh. Now, I don't know if many people knew that Spider-Man the Musical was coming to Broadway, but oh, it is. And uh, the music is being done by U2, is being done by Bono and Edge. Oh. Not necessarily U2, but, but the two main guys of U2 are doing right. the music. And so th- they got to doing this music through this producer. He had gotten them to do it. So, you know, naturally, uh, I didn't think to ask at the time, but afterwards I was just thinking about it on the train ride home. I'm like, wait a minute, this is it. This is my in to Bono. Right, I wished for it, and the universe answered, so I feel like I could at least get a message to uh to Bono about this, but then as i was I had met uh this is last night now Saturday uh, here at peritopia, look, I'm not breaking the fourth wall uh I had uh, you know I had dinner with uh, Melissa and uh, the two Kogi representatives, one from Columbia uh, who had flown in to talk about the stuff and the other um, guy from Connecticut originally. Very interesting people, and um, but again, it's not really clear that that's even what they want to do, because they need everything to be perfect. Money isn't really the problem. They've had offers thrown their way, and uh, people seem to be going crazy to associate themselves with the Kogi, because they are so mysterious, quote-unquote, and reclusive, um, but the Kogi need everything to be just right. They need to do everything on their terms. And so, just write to them doesn't mean getting out on a stage. They're certainly not going to speak openly like that. I mean, I almost get the sense of like uh, if you've ever seen The Dark Crystal,
1: <laughs> uh.
0: where where the, those elders just sort of move along and and do their thing at their pace while the chaos of the world crumbling around them goes on, and it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, they're going to get to their destination. It seems like that kind of thing, where you know, um, where we're the the worker ants uh and they've already got this figured out what they're actually going to do. So we'll see how it how it unfolds. Maybe we'll be involved, you know, culture of contact in some way, maybe not, maybe, you know, ultimately we won't have uh anything to, to really valid to offer. Um but interesting, just interesting that it's even even on the plate, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Um and that they do want to speak to the world and that it's not just about getting their land back for them it's about now is the time for them to come off the mountain and address the world and tell the world something you know huh and and the way they're going to tell the world that something is through action is through not not really even publicized action is through their meditation somehow acquiring the knowledge of a spot on the earth that they need to be to <laughs> to to build up in their, you know, magical way and, um, create an effect from, essentially. Huh.
2: Now, are these, um, um uh, are these people extremely primitive or not?
0: Um, I don't know, I don't know much about that. I mean, I don't even know what primitive means anymore, um...
2: Meaning, do they drive cars, or... No,
0: no, no, yeah, they're they're primitive. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, like I said, you can't even have shoes when you go up the mountain to meet them. They're, no, they're people who will come out of the forest, see you, and go right back in, and you'll never see them again. You How know, do they eat? Kind of people. Um, I don't know. I imagine they hunt and gather, like... Huh. Any other tribe? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, and and of course, all the politics of it is interesting to me too, because it's the kind of thing where they have sort of a sovereign nation treaty with Colombia. You know, they they've got paperwork uh, that someone has done on their behalf from way back when, but now, of course, it's inconvenient for Colombia because they're in the way of quote unquote progress. So, uh, and then the other thing that they're known for, I guess, is you know they're right on top of uh, coffee. (laughs) Um, And and their coffee is supposed to be magical because, you know, they're somehow blessing it or doing whatever it is that they do. I know I'm not saying that correctly, but whatever it is that they do to it gives it some sort of magical healing properties. So their coffee goes for, you know, thousands of bucks. uh, Wow. If you can get it, you know, it's that kind of thing. Um, All very interesting, all... Very so I'm guessing
2: until they come here, we'll have to deal with Maxwell House, then.
0: Yeah, until they get here, it's chock full of nuts for me. Right. <laughs> um, but I'll keep you oh. updated when I know more, or if I'm told to shut up, I guess I'll do that, too. Because I I guess I sort of need to respect the wishes of these, these people. Um, yeah,
2: it sounds like an interesting project, though.
0: Yeah. Hmm. I just wish I knew what exactly it is that we were even talking about. <laughs> you know, like... A, what is it that you need? you need money? Do you need...
2: They didn't answer any of these questions? The- well,
0: they didn't seem to know. They were just sort of like, it's, you know, essentially saying it's not that easy. That, huh. you know, the, it's hard to, to talk to people about this because people want cut and dry answers, kind of like what we're talking about here. Yeah. People want cut and dry answers, of course, because you want to then act on them and and do whatever it is you need to do, but the Kogi don't work that way, you know? It's more a holistic approach to everything. Wow, um,
2: that could be incredibly difficult
0: <laughs> yeah it's I imagine it's very frustrating, um, huh. but they also are very clear about you know whatever it is, whatever it is, a don't feel like you need to do anything, and b do it at your own pace, you know there's no there's no huge rush here, even though they're in a rush, <laughs> you know what I mean, so it's a weird huh. everything is paradoxical, it's like just take your time and do what's right, but this needs to be done now, you know, uh of course, their sense of now is completely different than ours because they their sense of time is completely different than ours i mean they they talk about things you know five hundred years ago like they're now, um, huh. and that I think that's a common trait even with Native Americans, right it's that sense of nonlinear time so, yeah, yeah, so what they might be saying now and and I'm thinking one thing and they're meaning another uh. Who knows? Wow. Who knows what I even just said? Uh, not me. I, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I just described <laughs> it, and I don't know what I just said. But but that was my that was my wild wacky weekend. I just thought it was odd that I had that synchronicity with the Bono thing, where it's like, oh, yeah, clearly I can g- get a fax to Bono if I want to about this. So I said to them, you know, if it, if it is about that, then definitely let me know, and I'll slap together a package to give to the guy.
1: Huh. In the name. Of love!
0: Now, please
2: don't do that.
1: One more.
0: No, nothing. More. I
2: I think uh I think what'll be really amusing is if you get him involved in it and they find out that, that they don't want him involved in it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I, well, I want to know how we get him an edge on the show. Do <laughs> we? I just want them to 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 be unpari.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: For no reason, just to follow up with. Philippe More and just, you know, turn this into a complete celeb fest instead of Yeah, know. right.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I mean I, I I don't know, it it uh, I mean I I I come away from you telling me all this stuff and I go, I hope that works out uh-huh. uh, because I don't I don't know what it's it's bizarre to me that they don't really wanna tell you what's required or what they need or what has well, to be little right. I
0: mean, to give you a little bit of background, one of the people who's working with him is someone who was closely associated with John Mack mm-hmm. and who really introduced him to um, indigenous peoples from all around, and and got him, you sort know, sort of hooked up into shamanism and all that sort of stuff. Right. So wait, what was the question? What were you saying? I just fucking lost my. No, thought. I just, I just, lost I mean,
1: luck.
2: you you know, you meet with- with these people to try to enact something uh, to occur and they don't oh, know oh, what yeah. it is. And it's like, you know, my answer would be, well, what the hell do you want us to do here? I mean, what, what is it that you need? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure things, a way to make it happen.
0: Yeah. One of the, one of the things that they, you know, originally when they came here, somehow, some way they got in contact with, again, primitive people, no phone, no, no, sure. light, no motor car. Um, came and got a hold of Sequoia Trueblood, who you might remember from uh, John Mack's Passport to the Cosmos book. Um, They knew who he was. Uh, Supposedly, they're telepathic. And that's how they communicate with each other. That's how they communicate with their representatives, uh, with whom I uh, visited, or who visited me. And so they knew. They knew who Sequoia Trueblood was. And that meant something to them. And they said, look, you've got to come meet the elders here on the mountain. And uh, so, I mean, that's that's how it sort of snowballed into um, them coming off the mountain and coming to North America. That I mean, that's essentially who's been trying to uh, you know, meet and greet them with the world, it's the man behind the scenes. Um, and I guess beyond all of this, you know, maybe I shouldn't say anything because I really don't know what it is I'm supposed to not Say um, but we'll have uh we'll have one of them there Kogi representatives on the show, and perhaps they can elucidate us a hell of a lot better than my rambling uh but just points of interest, I thought
2: yeah, well keep us updated with that. I shall sounds really uh pretty interesting,
0: so what else anything else we need to uh address before we go our separate ways?
2: Well, the stuff with Ted Phillips is still being worked out. Yeah, uh, for his funding on that, and I actually called him this week, and uh, he must be at Marley because I haven't heard back from him yet. So we'll um, we'll keep everybody updated with what's going on with that. Um, uh, and and uh, a special thank you to uh, Bill and Nancy Burns for t- contacting Philip Mar for us and getting us that uh, that interview. Because
0: Philippe Jeff Philippe. Philippe
2: Philippe, sorry Philippe. Um. So, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's it. And
0: special thanks to Philippe Mora for, in the future, getting us tickets to Eric Clapton concerts. And backstage. Yeah, which he doesn't know about, but... <laughs>
2: thanks, Philippe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh. That email's coming soon. <laughs> Rock on. I'm sure you don't have any uh, enough hangers on there in Hollywood. No, of course not. <laughs> of course not.
2: Yeah, great show, man.
0: Party on Garth.
2: On to the next. I this is no good. I can't do this. What? No. I wanna go home. Please, let me go. Uh... <laughs> let let me smell you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> are you
2: are you old? Let me smell you.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Turn off your mic so I can do this. We <laughs> <laughs> start this all over again. I
0: think we could just—I can just edit that and use that.
2: Wait a minute. Let me let me give you a clean one here.
0: We are in separate tracks. <laughs>
2: oh okay uh i want to go home i wanted to go home (laughs) (laughs) boo (laughs) boo (laughs) (laughs) the first thing i'd like to say is seasoned greetings (laughs) and please keep your hands above the table at all times (sighs) Boo! <laughs>
0: Boo! All right, I think we can. I think somewhere I didn't.
2: There. I didn't come all this way for you to tell me that that's what it is because I don't buy that. That there's something underneath that. It's like a puzzle, it's like a Chinese box.
3: <laughs> ah,
2: you're right. It is like a box, and you're not going to be allowed to see. So let's just get that clear. <laughs> You know, not going to let us see you, are you? That's pretty smart. That's. Mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's
2: right, it is a puzzle, it's like a Chinese box. You're not going to be allowed to see. So let's just get that clear right now. <sighs>
1: <laughs> Ridiculous.
0: All right, <laughs> I think that's good. You're home.
2: <laughs> yes, I'm home. I something happened. Something happened. <laughs> that's right. Something, something. I saw them. They asked me to go with them. Forever, I think. <laughs> I just came back to get my stuff.
1: <laughs> ha
2: ha ha. ha. <laughs> 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 Listen to me, Wetley. Look at my finger. I'm going to take you back <laughs> on December twenty eighth. Why don't you have your <laughs> usual large portion of?
1: <laughs> Take us home, oh, <laughs>
2: Was there an owl in here? Mike? An owl? <laughs> I, don't know if I saw an owl. It must have been a dream. <laughs> must have been a dream. That was some dream. <laughs> <laughs> <I guess.
1: laughs>
2: See at the at the at the diner, we need Don Ecker to play the Russian friend.
0: <laughs>
2: God, they're looking,
0: they're looking all over for you. You know, I mean. Uh, hey, they're looking all over for you there. You yeah, freaking I, hump.
2: Well, right, I know. I went to the psychiatrist, and I was supposed to remember something like prowlers. I, but I remember something different. I sure do. Uh, 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 little blue fuckers about this big. <laughs> Uh, let's see
1: who else.
0: <laughs> I gotta shut this off. Or-